Good morning, everyone. My name is Andrew, and I serve as one of the pastors here. I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the Scriptures today. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Samuel chapter 30 as we continue our journey through this book with a, a couple of weeks left. Now, we have a rather lengthy passage uh, before us today, so I'll be summarizing a lot of it and reading portions of it as we kind of move through it together as What we find here is just a a powerful narrative that anticipates the gospel that is the good news of Jesus, the the good news of the kingdom of God coming into the world and what it's going to be about. This story anticipates these dynamic realities really, really well. Now I am a fan of well-written, thought-provoking television shows. And a friend of mine years ago, uh, who was going to med school at the time, he introduced me to a show that was coming out, produced by a guy named Bill Lawrence, titled Scrubs. Now, he told me that this show, out of all the sitcoms, that, or all the shows that are kind of medical-based or hospital-based, uh, aside from its kind of zany sense of humor and some of the romantical dynamics of it, uh, aside from those things, he said that this, this show actually depicts what life is like in the hospital uh, more accurately than any other show on television. That would include Grey's Anatomy, which is filled with nonsense, and other shows like that, that this show really showcases uh, a realistic picture of what life in the hospital is like. And so with a blend of comedy and drama, it tackles various uh, medical questions and ethical dilemmas. It showcases personal challenges that are faced by those in the healthcare profession. Well, there was one episode years ago that came out and addressed the question of suffering. Wondering, is there any purpose behind suffering? Is there any rhyme or reason to it? And there was one character by the name of Laverne. And Laverne is someone who believed in God, and she carried a worldview that said, look, there, there is purpose behind our pain. There is purpose behind our suffering. And she was kind of pitted against another character in the episode named Dr. Cox. And Dr. Cox is this hardened agnostic, and he believes all suffering is arbitrary, and there is no rhyme or reason to it at all. Well, their worldviews collided in this episode when a child was brought in for emergency surgery after being stabbed randomly during a robbery. And while Dr. Cox was really using that as a as a soapbox for deconstructing Laverne's worldview and kind of pulling apart this idea that there's any purpose behind suffering, the surgeons performing on this child found a tumor very close to the wound or to to the entry point of the knife. And the surgeons concluded that this tumor would have certainly uh, taken this child's life in a very short order had, had that child not been brought in under these circumstances. And so it was a surprising kind of turn in the plot. It left everyone, including Dr. Cox, speechless. And everyone there was just elated and relieved by this news. And so the day kind of ended well. Everyone was riding a high. But the next morning, the next morning, Dr. Cox enters the hospital with some pep in his step and a smile on his face, encouraged by the previous day's events. But the moment he turns the corner and he enters the kind of the place where all the employees were, he was met with a bunch of co-workers with teary eyes. And he learned that after leaving the hospital the night before that Laverne was in a car crash and now she was in a, in a coma and would not recover. 
And upon hearing this news, you just saw the joy just drained instantly out of Dr. Cox's face. At the prior day's relief and levity, it proved to be short-lived, and the same questions about suffering and hardship were brought back all over again. Well, as you and I step into 1 Samuel chapter 30 today, you have to imagine David and his men walking to Ziklag, which was their base of operations in the Philistine territory. They're walking to Ziklag with some pep in their step. They're walking to Ziklag with a smile on their face, and there is relief in their expressions because the prior day to this moment, God's quiet providence combined with David's practice of prudence, it it served to deliver David and his men from a very complicated situation. One that allowed them to return home while maintaining their loyalty to God and and not offending Achish, who was the ruler of the Philistines. They were able to return to Ziklag unscathed and their true loyalties undetected, undiscovered. And so with great relief and with great joy, they are returning home for their temporary home, their base of operations. But the joy of that day's deliverance would be short-lived. Because as they were walking up the hill to Ziklag, they noticed plumes of smoke ascending to the sky. No women or children could be found. The place was dead quiet aside from the tears of those who were still there. For the Amalekites had raided and burned Ziklag to the ground. And David's two wives, Ahinoam and Abigail, had been taken captive along with all the others. It was a tragic and terrible scene. As David and his troops began to weep loudly, the the text tells us that they cried so hard that they could cry no more. They cried themselves dry. This is how distraught they were. This is how embittered they felt at the loss of their sons and daughters as they would leave a good moment and step into this terrible moment. You see this digression of grief, bitterness, and rage. So much rage that David's men decided they wanted to take him out. They actually entertained the idea of stoning David for not being there and taking all the troops to where the to where Achish and his guys were allowing this thing to happen. They had all looked forward to, re- to arriving at Ziklag and being united with their wives and with their daughters. It was a 60-mile trip that They likely took as quickly as possible with great excitement and anticipation. But when they showed up, all that joy, all that excitement was gone in a flash. Because when they arrived, they found that Israel's future King David, that his people were in trouble. His people were in trouble in the sense that they had been plundered and taken taken captive by an ancient enemy. A group of people known as the Amalekites. Now, this is the same group of people who harassed Israel when they journeyed through the wilderness in the book of Exodus. This was the same group of people who fell under the curse of God because they themselves cursed Israel during that time. And as a result, the Lord's judgment would fall upon them. And the Lord would call his leaders, leaders among his people, King Saul included, to take the Amalekites out. But if you recall, King Saul did not do so. He failed to take this people out, this ancient enemy out, and as a result, they were around when when the king's people found themselves defenseless, found themselves vulnerable, and so the Amalekites decided to take advantage of it. 
And when they showed up in Ziklag, they found a people who were in many ways harassed and helpless. In many ways, they were like sheep without a shepherd, and they ran over them. And so when David shows up in this moment, he is deeply moved. He begins to weep uncontrollably. He begins to cry tears that are not unlike, although not equal to, the tears Jesus cried when he looked out over the city of Jerusalem and he saw a people there who were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd and compassion would stir within him that would drive him to action. Well, the same thing goes here. This compassion, this grief, this distraught feeling that David has in this moment is going to drive him to action. He has to look to help from somewhere. And so what did he do in the story? He, he only has a couple of options. And two of them are terrible options. He can't look to Achish, the ruler of the Philistines, to help him out with this problem. Because if he looked to them, then that might kind of give his true loyalties away. Plus, Achish and the Philistines were off towards getting into a war and a battle with Israel. David can't look to Saul because Saul hates David and he's, Saul views David as a mortal enemy. Plus, King Saul has his hands full with the Philistine forces. So there's really no place in the world that David can look to. So rather than looking around for a solution, what does he do? He looks up. He turns his attention to the Lord, and, and we're told at the end of verse 6b, notice this little phrase. It says, but David found strength in the Lord his God. You see, fortunately for David, the king's God is personal. And you have a remarkable statement here of David finding strength in the Lord. Notice this word, his God. There's a familiarity between David and the Lord. There's an intimacy and a closeness between David and the Lord, his God. So much so that he has the audacity to use this kind of language to refer to his relationship with the Lord. If you were to survey the book of Psalms, many of which were written by David, you will find that there's about 60 times when David uses first person possessive pronouns to describe his relationship with God. This is a man who owned that relationship. This was a guy who knew that the Lord owned him and that he now, in a sense, owns the Lord. So he would call the Lord his God. He would call the Lord my God. This is the reality for people of faith. This is the reality for those who are walking in relationship with the Lord. We don't just talk about him as the Lord, we talk to him as my Lord and our Lord. This is the beautiful reality of what it means to be a Christian, so that we don't just talk about Jesus as the Savior, we talk about Jesus as my Savior and our Savior. We don't just talk about Jesus as, as the King, we refer to Jesus as my King and our King. This is the way people of faith are privileged to talk about the Lord. This is what it means to be a Christian. A Christian isn't someone who has a generic theoretical relationship with the creator of the universe. A Christian is someone who has an earthy, tangible, close and intimate, familiar relationship with the creator of the universe. And so when we talk about God, we don't talk to him, talk about him in a far off remote way. We talk 
to him and we talk about him in a very personal and close way using language like my Lord, my God, my Savior, my King. This is how we talk in our relationship with Jesus. And this is how you and I should learn to talk when we are confronted with the realities of suffering in a fallen world. Notice that when David steps up into Ziklag and he sees this devastation, this is how he talks. He does not waste his breath talking about the Lord in a distant and removed and an irrelevant fashion. Instead, he responds to this terrible scene by talking directly or for it to, it seems, cultivating his close relationship with the Lord because this is what people of faith do when confronted with these realities. We try not to waste our breath talking about the Lord. We want to talk directly to the Lord when we are asking questions like, why are we suffering? Why are we hurting? Why are we struggling? When we see the different struggles of life in a fallen world, we don't waste our breath pressing into the Lord and demanding explanations. Instead, what people of faith do is we press into our relationship with the Lord and we ask Him to salvage everything. And there's a difference between a person of faith who's demanding explanations from God when confronted with suffering and calamity and a person of faith who is looking to the Lord to salvage everything, to make what is wrong in the world right, to make what is wrong in our lives right. We don't want explanations from God. We want the Lord to salvage everything on our behalf. And this is what David finds the Lord doing. You see, as king, David sees himself as part of the solution. So he turns to a guy named Abiathar. Abiathar was the son of Ahimelech. He was the last remaining priest. He was the guy who fled with David because Saul wanted to kill him too. So now he's with David. So David turns to him and he asks him to bring the ephod. And the ephod was what contained the umum and the thumum, these objects that priests used to try to discern the Lord's will in the Old Testament. And so David calls for these items. And, and then he asks the question, should I pursue these raiders? Will I overtake them? You see how he's asking the Lord, how is this situation going to be salvaged? What role do I have? What part should I play? Should I go? Should I, will I overtake them? What do you want me to do? And then the Lord answers in verse 8. The Lord says, pursue them, for you will certainly overtake them and rescue the people. And so that's what David does. He takes six, the 600 men who were running with him all this time, and they went on the hunt for the Amalekites. It kind of reminds me of Aragorn running with Gimli and, oh my gosh, Gimli and, what was the elf's name? Somebody tell me. Legolas, unbelievable, running with those guys as they were in search and hunting for the Urukai after taking the, the hobbits captive. And they've got Pippin and Mary, and they're running with them, and now these guys are chasing afterwards. That's sort of the scene that's happening here. As King David is leading his men in pursuit of the Amalekite forces. Now, we're told as you kind of move through the story that they arrive at a stream called the Vadi Basur. And this was a little stream, and there something interesting happens. We're told that of those 600 men, 200 of them were exhausted. 200 of them got to the point where they couldn't take another step. They did not feel they'd be very effective in battle, so they said, look, David, we can't run anymore. We can't go with you anymore. So 200 men stopped there. And so David takes the 400 remaining men, 
and they move a little further. And then in verse 11, we're told that this, this group come upon a single Egyptian man in the open country. And this single Egyptian man out in the desert would tell David that he was the slave of an Amalekite, but that his master left him after he got sick about three days prior, just abandoned him, leaving him in the desert alone. And then he went on to tell David what happened in Ziklag. He explained how he and the other Amalekites raided various communities, including Ziklag, burning it to the ground. And so verse 15, David sees this as an opportunity, an opportunity to get some help from this stranger who's been abandoned in the desert. And so he asks, will you lead me to these raiders? And the Egyptian answered, swear to me by God that you won't kill me or turn me over to my master and I will lead you to them. And and then that's what happens. And so through this, through another example of God's sort of subtle and quiet providence, the king's path is provided. This is how he would discover where the Amalekites are. You know, God's providence is essential in the lives of his people, especially when they're in trouble. When we are in trouble, we must know that God is not remote or removed from our affairs that he is close and intimately involved, orchestrating events and directing our paths so that we might get to where we belong, where we may get to where he ultimately wants us to be. I think about my own life in recent years, you know, we're sitting in this building, this is probably the fourth or fifth week we've gathered here, and I first learned about this building at the end of 2020. But at the time of learning that this building was going to be made available and I was too tired. I didn't have the energy to even look at it. So I just deleted the email. I didn't follow up on it. I didn't give it another thought. And we had been praying for years and pursuing various spaces for our church for, for a long time. And we sweat a lot trying to make things happen and to force certain issues. And, and it just never really materialized. So by that point, I was just tired of the whole conversation and got presented with this option and I just turned the other way. I didn't even think about it. Then five months later, I get an email from another pastor in the city who was praying through moving his church to this area. And they actually got this building under contract. They, were, they had purchased this building. They did all the hard work of negotiations and bidding and all that stuff and they found themselves under contract with this building. But the Lord, uh, they decided that the Lord didn't want them to move forward with it. So he called me up and he said, hey, have you guys, are you aware of this property? If so, maybe you guys should consider kind of letting us hand you the baton. All the work's been done. You guys can just grab it and run with it if it would be a good fit for you. And so at that point, I said, okay, well, maybe I should look at it. And so I started to pray a little bit. I went to the elders and started to talk with people in our church about this prospect and and in the end, we believed that this was what the Lord would have for us. And at that point, my energy level was a lot higher. and I was ready to have these types of conversations again. And, and you know the rest of the story because we're here right now. Now, what encourages me about how things unfolded is that I believe the Lord preserved this space for us until the time was right for us to get it. That unbeknownst to me, he worked through another church to secure this property so that a developer didn't grab it and build up. He 
provided an opportunity for the church that was here prior that was moving into a, a ministry there where they wanted to take the gospel into group homes and minister to those who were mentally challenged and, and take the gospel on more of a circuit capacity, but they needed the funding, which is why they wanted to sell this building to begin with. He was working something out for them. He was working something out with the church, taking them through a process that had this under. And he was working something out with us and for us as well. And when the timing was right, the Lord pulled all those threads together in his quiet and his subtle providence. And he provided an opportunity for us to take over and to purchase this building, and which would fund a new ministry in the city to a population that, that needed a different strategy and a different approach to, to kind of love and to serve with the gospel. And, and then worked out his will for the original congregation that had this under contract. He put all those threads together and we hardly broke a sweat. Within two months the Lord provided the funds needed to, to get this building under contract through your generosity and the generosity of partners. And It was such a stark contrast from the conversations we had prior to this property where we were working really hard to make things happen. All of a sudden when we stepped back and just started to relax a little bit, that's when things materialized. And God's providence came through, and, and we found ourselves in a place where we belong. It reminds me of Proverbs 16, 9, when we're told that a person's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. We plan lots of things, we try lots of things, but at the end of the day, the Lord is determining the path and the steps of his people to bring us where we belong. This is our experience as people of faith. This is David's experience in this story. Because David's efforts to rescue those taken captive by the Amalekites would get a lot easier after just happening to cross paths with this abandoned Egyptian in the open country, in this desert space. And this Egyptian would lead David and his 400 men to where the Amalekites were camping. And at that time, the Amalekites were not ready for David and his troops to show up. We're told that they were spread out, they were eating, they were drinking, they were celebrating all the plunder that they had taken from various peoples, the people of Israel included. And, and then notice what happens in verse 17. David and his men shows up, and in verse 17 it says, David slaughtered them from twilight until the evening of the next day. None of them escaped except 400 young men who got on camels and fled. David recovered everything in the, Amalek the Amalekites had taken. He also rescued his two wives. Nothing of theirs was missing from the youngest to the oldest, including the sons and daughters. And all the plunder the Amalekites had taken, get this, David got everything back. The king's victory on behalf of his people is complete in this moment. As David would rescue every person, every animal, every item taken. If this was mortal combat, this is a flawless victory. Just everything coming back to the people of Israel. And the king's victory rests, like this whole dynamic really kind of sits at the heart of this story. What David did, he did completely. After he did this, there was nothing left for anyone to do. And, but notice what happens next in verse 21. You look at verse 21, we're told that when David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to go with him and had been left at the Vadi Basor, they came out to meet the troops with him. And when David approached the men, he greeted them. But all the corrupt and worthless men among those who had gone with David argued. 
because they didn't want, they didn't go with us, we will not give any of the plunder we recovered to them except for each man's wife and children. They may take them and go. See, there's a schism growing amongst David's troops. The 400 fighters who broke a sweat, the 400 fighters who who went to war against the Amalekites, they did not want to share the plunder of their labors, it seems, with the 200 people who stayed behind. In their mind, those 200 soldiers were undeserving. Now, we already know that this group of soldiers running with David, they weren't the best people in the world. They were with David because they were basically outlaws in Israel. They were in debt. They had all kinds of uh, corruption that just kind of marked them before they started running with the king. And, And so some of that carried over into this situation. And so what they do is they kind of use the guise of justice as, as a covering. And under the guise of justice, they, they kind of hide their greed. They hide their true intentions. They make the statement, well, whoever, doesn't, whoever didn't fight isn't going to eat. Whoever didn't fight isn't going to enjoy the plunder that we just grabbed. But then Israel's future king, Israel's future king does something extraordinary here. He does something otherworldly. He does something that no heart or mind had ever conceived of prior to this point in time. He begins to operate not on the basis of merit and what people earned. He begins to operate on the basis of grace. Notice his decisive grace in verse 21. That the king's grace is decisive in this moment. I'm sorry, verse 23. It says, but David said, my brothers, you must not do this with what the Lord has given to us. He protected us and handed over to us the raiders who came against us. Who can agree to your proposal? The share of the one who goes into battle is to be the same as the share of the one who remains with the supplies. They will share equally. Does that bother you at all? What David is saying here, that the one who went into the share of that victorious soldier is going to be given to who stayed behind and didn't lift a finger in the fight? Does that equation bother you? Well, David here is establishing what's called an economy of grace amongst the people of God. He's setting the template for what would later be actualized and fulfilled in the gospel. You see, grace is not merely some theological concept that we like to throw around. Grace is a life-changing, kingdom-making reality. Grace is what makes God's, what sets God's king and God's people apart in the world that is as we journey towards the world that is to come. Grace is the air that we breathe, and it accounts not only for how you and I enter the kingdom of God and have relationship with Jesus. Grace accounts for every step we take along that journey, every decision we make. It characterizes and marks out what might be described as the royal life, what it means to be the people of God. Grace is everything. Now, David recognizes that this victory wasn't one that they achieved ultimately. He credited the victory with the Lord. It was a victory they received. Now, they participated in it, but by the grace and power of God, they would prevail over the Amalekites. 
And because of that, that's what kind of dominates David's thinking in this moment. He's saying, guys, you can't be stingy and picky about this plunder because the Lord gave us this stuff. This all happened by the grace of God. You see, grace must always be the decisive and dominating factor in a Christian's life. Where we recognize that any success or any blessing, any good gift that we receive in this life, it comes to us according to the Father of lights. It comes to us according to the grace and goodness of God. And this might sound good to some of you, but others of you, your your sense of justice might start getting riled up. It doesn't seem right that people who didn't work are going to benefit from the labor of someone else. But isn't that the gospel? Isn't that the reality of what we are a part of as followers of Jesus? This is the type of reality that humbles us. This is the type of reality that keeps sinners and sufferers like you and me from worshiping ourselves when we get through a rough patch. Crossing through a situation, getting to the other side, and rather than looking up and thanking the Lord and being humbled by His grace, we look into a mirror and we celebrate who we are and what we are about in the world. You see, grace is what keeps us humble. Grace is what keeps us God-centered and God-focused in all of our endeavors. And so what David is implementing here, you've perhaps heard something called the golden rule before. And the golden rule is that reality that, that we teach kids a lot. We say, okay, why don't you treat people as you want those people to treat you? But is the golden rule what's being championed in this passage? What David champions in this passage isn't the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. What David champions here is called the gospel rule. Do unto others as God in Christ has done unto you. That's a different paradigm. That's a different way to live. This is what an economy of grace is all about. We do not treat people on the basis of their merit or what they deserve. We treat people according to how God in Christ has treated us. This is why Jesus would say, look, if as you pray, Father, forgive me, you better pray as I forgive those who sin against me. That the forgiveness that we've been given is forgiveness that we extend to people who have harmed or hurt us or treated us poorly. That's the gospel rule. It's treating people on the basis, not of what they deserve, but on the basis of how God in Christ treats us. This is what we're seeing in this passage. And this is what shows up in the church. When the church is birthed in Acts 2, isn't this what happens? Acts chapter 2, verse 44, now all the believers were together and held all things in common They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. This is an economy of grace. This is the type of culture that grace produces, that grace creates. This is the type of generosity and care that arises when the gospel takes root in the lives of sinners and sufferers like us. If we are believing the gospel we will become a culture and a community of grace. And it is at this point in time where I want you to see how, our, how this story in many ways anticipates the story of Jesus. 
how the story of what King David does here anticipates the story of what our king does for us even now. Think about it with me. In this story, David would be a type of Christ. He's, he's the anointed one of God who comes to the rescue of people who were in trouble. His path led him to defeat his enemies in a victory that was complete, and the spoils of that victory were handed out according to the economy of grace, not the economy of works. And all of that anticipates Jesus' story. Perhaps you know the moment when Jesus would ride into Jerusalem, but he wouldn't ride on a war horse. Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And a troubled people there, the same people that Jesus wept over a few days prior, this troubled people began to cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus would weep over these people for he knew they were held captive, that they were in trouble, not because of the Roman government. It had nothing to do with political systems. It had everything to do with an ancient enemy that has plagued humanity from the very beginning. An enemy that is much older than Rome, an enemy that was much older than the Amalekites. We're talking about sin, Satan, and death, our ancient enemies. And Jesus knew that these ancient enemies held people captive. And so he walked into he rode into Jerusalem that day not to slaughter anyone the day David would the way David would slaughter the Amalekites. No, he entered Jerusalem that day to be slaughtered, to give up his life, to do something much deeper. Because that was the path provided for the king to walk, a path that ran to Jerusalem and into a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus would weep through the will of his Father. And you see the intimacy that he shared with God because he doesn't just talk to God in an abstract, generic sense. He calls God my Father, a personal God, a relational God. Jesus is leaning into that as this crisis is before him, praying, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup. That is the cup of wrath or the cup of judgment, the type of thing that did fall on the Amalekites. Let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And Jesus would stand and he would follow the path provided all the way to the cross where he would suffer and die for our sins. And you can't help but imagine the moment Jesus breathed his last breath. You can't help but imagine Satan and all his minions celebrating and reveling in the spoils of that death. Celebrating and reveling in the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, had died. But you can't help but imagine how Satan was caught off guard. How he was surprised the moment Jesus rose from the grave and he steps out of the tomb, crushing the head of Satan in the process. In that moment, slaughtering this ancient foe. And our king would keep rising as he ascended to the heavens and he took his seat at the right hand of the throne of God where he rules and reigns in victory. And so David's victory in this story, 1 Samuel chapter 30, this victory mustn't be seen as as an episode, this victory should be seen as a promise, as a type of pledge. At this model scenario of how it will be when the Lord makes all of his ancient enemies his footstool. 
when Jesus, the son of David, and the eternal king breaks the curse of sin. He crushes the head of the serpent. And he removes, he carves out the sting of death. His victory on our behalf is complete. So that all of a sudden there's nothing left for you and I to do. There's nothing else for you and I to do. Just receive the plunder. Receive the blessing of his victory. And this is what we're told to do in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. Now grace, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive. He gave gifts to people. What that is saying is that when Jesus ascended, He took back everything that the enemy held captive, all of our talents, all of our time, our very lives. Jesus took it back. And now he's giving it back to us so that you and I might freely use our time, our talents, our lives for the purposes they were intended. So that you and I may now live for the glory of God and for the good of people around us. So that you and I might become little snapshots of heaven on earth. Because our lives are marked out not by merit and what people deserve and what people might be, what we might think they are worth. Instead, we are living lives marked out by the grace of God. Freely we have received the gift of life and freely we give life to each and every person we come in contact with. Because our risen, victorious king has taken it all back. This is why when you become a Christian, the Bible still uses odd language to to describe what that means. The Bible still kind of refers to you and I as a type of servant. The Bible talks about you and I in ways that say, look, you know, we are free, but understand that our freedom doesn't look like autonomy. Our freedom actually looks like dependence. So that we have now been set free to depend upon the grace of God. We have now been set free to delight in the grace of God. We've now been set free to live the lives we were originally created to live. Now those, that, that's not a life to be lived for ourselves. That is a life to be lived for the glory of God and for the good of others. So that whatever time, talents, treasures, whatever life you have, you don't own that life. You give that life. Because your life is not your own. You were bought with a price. You were bought with the price of Jesus' blood. You've been brought into a new reality where salvation and redemption and true freedom is found. And this came not because you picked up a sword and fought. This came because Jesus fought for you. And he did for you what you could never do for yourself. He lived the life of perfect obedience. He died on the cross in our place, in our stead, and he rose from the grave to defeat sin, to defeat Satan, to defeat death. And now he gives life freely to all who look up and fix the eyes of their faith upon him, finding solution and hope, finding God salvaging everything for us. And that includes your sufferings. Jesus has this uncanny ability of taking all the terrible things that happen in a person's life 
He has an uncanny, unmatched ability of taking those moments, taking those experiences, taking those tragedies, and flipping the script on them. So that we can say that what the enemy meant to harm us and to defeat us, God is now intending for good. So that we can believe that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That Jesus salvages everything. And so we rest in that reality. We celebrate that reality. We worship Jesus in response to that reality. Let's do that now. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Jesus. We thank you for sending Jesus to our rescue. Thank you for sending Jesus to live the life that we could not live and to die the death that we were destined and deserved to die, to change all of that for us as he rose from the grave. Thank you for the hope and the life and the freedom that that awards us. Thank you for grace. Thank you for treating us far better than we have earned or deserve. And I pray, God, that you would now help us treat others in like fashion, that you would help us to give our lives and all that that entails to your purposes in this world, that we might live for your glory and for the good of your people and for the good of those that we are interacting with on a daily basis. God, would you establish an economy of grace among us, all in Jesus' name, amen.